How appropriate that our corporate confession of sin included there at the very beginning. Forgive us for thinking small thoughts of you and ignoring your immensity and your greatness. So, as we come now to the preaching of God's Word, I encourage everyone who has their copy of the Word with them to take it up and turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40 as we read the chapter in its entirety and behold our God. Hear now the word of the Lord. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, is it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arms, and carry them in His bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of, of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman meeteth the graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will rot not. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, 
and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious and glorious Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. O Lord, you stand apart from your creation, and yet in your infinite love and mercy, you caringly and sovereignly attend to every detail within her bounds. Your wisdom and power and indeed every aspect of your being are beyond our comprehension, and yet you have revealed yourself to us that we may know you and reverence your holy name. We give thanks to you for your self-revelation and your holy word as As we consider this text and the greatness of your perfection, we pray that your spirit will impart to us a new depth of humility in our hearts and cause our thoughts to soar with the awe and praise so that we may know and and with worshipful freshness the glory of our creator God. Help us, we pray, for we seek your blessing in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So continuing our series now in basic theology, we turn to God's incommunicable attributes. In doing so, I was drawn to this wonderful chapter in Isaiah where God's great power and majesty and glory are put on display. And just to provide a bit of a road map for the message this morning, first I will attempt to situate Isaiah chapter 40 in the larger context of the whole of Isaiah. Then we will turn our attention to the attributes of God as we distinguish between God's communicable and incommunicable attributes, providing definitions of these terms along the way. I will then provide some answers to the question, why should we study God's attributes, and conclude with the reflection on several, but not all, of God's incommunicable attributes. So we begin here in Isaiah chapter 40, and we find a message of comfort extended to those people of God who find themselves in the midst of despair. As we come to the 40th chapter with 39 chapters that have preceded it, the context is fairly straightforward. 
generalizing and speaking in summary terms only. The first 39 chapters, we find that God's prophet Isaiah proclaims God's judgment upon his people and indeed upon all who would forsake his law. God's judgment includes prophecies of Jerusalem and Judah's dominion by Assyria and Babylon, including their exile. And between chapter 39 and chapter 40 on the prophetic timeline, we find the 70-year Babylonian exile already taking place there. The beginning of chapter 40, Isaiah speaks to God's people as if the exile has already taken place, even though it hasn't. He is speaking prophetically at this point. At that point, the people, therefore, would have been isolated, oppressed, and very despondent. And the reason they found themselves in that position was because they had been in exile. And they were given to exile despite all the prophet's warnings because they had stopped listening to God. They had stopped listening to His servants. They had stopped trusting the word that they had received and instead of obeying Him, they gave themselves over to pride in their own wisdom and sought out other gods. They became idolaters. They oppressed the poor. They trusted in horses and chariots. They forsook God's blessing and forgot His promises. Instead of acknowledging Him as God, they rebelled against Him. Judah faced judgment because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, and broken the everlasting covenant, Isaiah 24.3. Chapter 40 then starts the second half of Isaiah where the exile of Israel is predicted to be over. It contains detailed prophecies of how Israel will be released from Babylon when Cyrus the Great will conquer Babylon. In chapters 40 through 48, there is much to rejoice in. Yet God has to address the unbelief in the Jews who would return from Babylon under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. There is still unbelief and resistance to God during the post-exilic period. We find that Messiah is the main theme of the next section of Isaiah, chapters 49 through 55. These chapters show that Jesus, the faithful servant of Jehovah, will completely fulfill God's mission for the whole earth. He will conquer, and His victory is sure. And then closing out Isaiah in chapters 56 through 66, we see how the servants of the the Messiah will inherit God's kingdom over time. Throughout Isaiah, we find a theme of contrast between Old Jerusalem and New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is mentioned 14 times in the book, and the Old Jerusalem is mentioned 35, with gradually, gradually the old being replaced by the new. And of course, it is the Messiah who accomplishes all of this. Focusing now on this pivotal chapter, chapter 40, we see God's greatness put on display, beginning with the commission God gave the prophet Isaiah in anticipation of what was to come. In verses 1 and 2, comfort, comfort. The Spirit moves Isaiah to speak comfort to his people. The people will have suffered enough. Her warfare is accomplished. Her exile is coming to an end. Her iniquity is pardoned. In verses 3 through 8, we find the preparation required. The set time having come, the people of God must be prepared in repentance and faith. They need to be instructed again who God is and who they are. 
They need to come to terms with his greatness and with their frailty. How does Isaiah begin their preparation? What is it the prophet is to say to the people? All flesh is as grass, and the flower fades and withers away, but the slightest breath of God withers them away. Man in all of his strength and glory is like the grass in comparison to the Creator. Their lives are short, filled with strife and grief, and then it is ended. But the word of the Lord endures forever. For the word of the Lord has spoken it. The people are called to humility with these words and are expected to apprehend the creator-creature distinction. And so in verses 9 through 11, we see the call to heed and to behold your God. The one who brings great comfort will come as a good shepherd and will gather up his beloved in the comfort of his arms, even as the shepherd gently carries the newborn lamb. And then in verses 12 through 31, we see the great corrective that the people need to hear and to receive and to believe. When a people forget who God is, they always turn away in reliance upon their own strength, their own wisdom. And so Isaiah brings a humbling rhetoric to bear, reminding the people who God, the Creator, is in contrast with His creation. In the rhetorical questions Isaiah poses, we see God's omniscience. His omnipotence and omnipresence. We see His infinite wisdom and ultimate sovereignty. We can even see His eternity and immutability. And these are but some of His attributes we will touch on in this message. So some definitions. When we speak about the attributes of God, we refer to the character traits of God as they are revealed to us in Scripture. While God is the transcendent creator, he is also personal and displays his character in all of his actions. Insofar as we come to know God in and through his actions and words as recorded across the breadth of Scripture, God is described as possessing certain characteristics or attributes. And as we attempt to articulate and meditate upon God's attributes, we should hold these descriptions and definitions with a high degree of humility recognizing the infinite distance between God as creator and ourselves as creatures. However, we also have confidence in these descriptions since God has chosen to disclose His identity and purpose to us across the Scriptures in ways that we can understand. While we confess that God is incomprehensible in the ultimate sense, we also confess that He is knowable in and through His self-revelation given to us. In Scripture, theologians have long distinguished the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, and so we need to understand what these terms mean. There are certain characteristics or attributes of God which are more readily understood and which, in some sense, are shared by both God and man, and we refer to these as His communicable attributes. There are other attributes of God which are not as readily understood and belong to God alone, and these we call His incommunicable attributes. So, for example, divine compassion is a communicable attribute of God because it is a characteristic with analogies in human compassion, though human compassion pales in comparison 
with divine compassion. On the other hand, God's immutability, that is, God never changes, is not a characteristic shared with men. We are always undergoing change. God does not change. The incommunicable attributes describe the ways in which God is not like the world He has created. How God is fundamentally different from His creatures. God is not bounded by time and space, nor is God ever divided in His motives or His motivations. There is an asymmetric relationship between God and His creatures. Creatures are dependent upon God, but in no instance is God dependent upon His creatures. So one reasonable question we may ask is, why should we study God's attributes or even His incommunicable attributes? And so let's look at three reasons from Scripture to help us answer this very question. First, it is pleasing to God to grow in the knowledge of Him. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Colossian churches that they might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We study God's attributes to better know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and in so doing, it is pleasing to Him, and it bears fruit in our lives. We identify ourselves as Christians, don't we? And we pray in His name, and yet we so easily forget that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. We can't separate His humanity from His deity. We are to ever be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto us Himself a people zealous of good works, as Paul wrote Titus. The more we understand God the more we understand the Lord Jesus, and therefore we must be, a, and we, the more we are able to trust in His redemption, in His power, His perfections. And so our praises and thanksgivings become more abundant and genuine, redounding to His glory with greater zeal, and thus more accurately we are able to speak who He truly is. And secondly, it guards us against having a wrong view of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We can only truly understand who God is by the Holy Spirit's illumination in His Word. To the natural man, these truths will be foolishness, but to us who are being saved, they are life. And so we must regard against a false, we must guard against a false view of God. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, ever desired to know more of God, writing to the Philippians, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. A.W. Tozer put it this way There is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. It's that important. And thirdly, it produces joy in our hearts. 
As we read in Psalm 16, in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Spurgeon exhorts us so eloquently when he wrote, Plunge yourself into the Godhead, into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can comfort the soul, so calm the swelling, swelling billows of sorrow and grief, and so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And so as we grow in our understanding of God, our love for Him increases, and so does our obedience. And in this, too, we find it is part of our joy. God's incommunicable attributes are important to us for us to understand because they are the attributes that tell us how God is not like us. You see, we are all prone to design God after our own image when left to our own devices. The more time that we can spend readjusting our focus and learning to say God has revealed Himself to be this way in His Word and not that way, the better. Now, this may sound harsh to our ears, but the God who is talked about in much of the average pulpit, spoken of in the ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day and preached at many Bible conferences, is a figment of human imagination, an invention of contemporary sentimentality. The heathen outside the pale of Christendom form gods of wood and stone, while millions of heathen inside Christendom manufacture a god out of their own carnal minds. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolutely supreme god and no god at all. A God whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and is far from being a fit object of worship, and merits nothing but contempt. When we fail to study God in His self-revelation, that is the inevitable path we find ourselves on. Many of us in this room have been there to one extent or another. I remember vividly laying on the bed in a hotel room while on a business trip reading Sproul's Chosen by God and flipping back and forth from the book to my Bible and to the book and to my Bible, reading the scripture that was just referenced in the book and feeling awe and excitement, having my eyes opened wider, but also wondering why had I been taught a different perspective on God's sovereignty. I needed to know God's attribute of divine sovereignty according to His revelation in Scripture. In a letter to Erasmus in his bondage of the will, Martin Luther wrote, Your thoughts of God are too human. With this statement, he was pushing back against Erasmus' humanistic tendency to bring God down to his own level of understanding and ability. Luther was zealous to maintain that God cannot be bounded by any human formulation or rationalization. Now, Luther had plenty of criticism for Erasmus for failing to appreciate God's free and sovereign prerogative to discriminate between the elect and the reprobate sinners. But that was hardly his point when he suggested Erasmus' thoughts about God were too human. 
These particular words were triggered by Erasmus' suggestion that some theological questions were unprofitable to discuss, especially before the masses. Erasmus illustrated his point by recalling the scholastic question of whether God is present in the whole of the dung beetle. Not particularly savoring the idea of occupying of God occupying a dung beetle hole, nor he himself occupying that hole, Erasmus had a hard time seeing any relevance or fruit in the theological speculation that places God there. When Luther rebuked Erasmus for thinking too, hum too human thoughts of God, he was criticizing him for failing to grasp the eminence of God, for failing to realize the lengths to which God went in the incarnation in order to rescue his people. Luther was pressing the eminence of God to show Erasmus that occupying the womb of Mary, taking on human flesh and suffering death upon the cross is every bit as foul and horrible to contemplate as the omnipresent sovereignty of God over the dung beetle in his hole. And Luther concluded his defense, what is fouler than death? What more horrifying than hell? Yet the prophet glories that God is present with him in death and hell. Therefore, a godly mind is not shocked to hear that God is present in death or hell, both of which are more horrible and foul than either a hole or a sewer. As falling, fallen creatures, this is an error that we are all prone to make, as, as did Israel. The psalmist writes, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself. Psalm 50, verse 21. We prefer, it would seem, a manageable, understandable, and relatable God. This kind of thinking creeps subtly into our view of worship, of providence, of salvation, of judgment for sin. In diminishing God and our conceptions of Him, these thoughts can enter into our thinking about even things such as missions. For example, we might reason this way. Sure, we should do what we can to reach the world with the gospel, but realistically, we shouldn't expect the gospel message to make too much difference. And so we deny the power of His Word, of His active participation in the means of grace that He has decreed. But this is to bring God down to our level and to have a low and unworthy expectation of Him. We therefore need to confess our weakness, to confess our sins and repent of our low view of God, even as we did this morning, and believe the gospel for all of our lives, including our thought lives, trusting in Jesus to elevate our thoughts and to bring them into alignment with how He has revealed Himself as we study His attributes. And so that brings us to our short list of incommunicable attributes. I should acknowledge at this point that there is no definitive list of God's attributes. Part of his incomprehensible incomprehensibility is that he, is not, he cannot be fully described by any list. As we read in Ephesians, he is above all and through all and in you all. And in Isaiah 64, since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. This limitation being conceded, I believe it's still profitable to begin to familiarize ourselves with several of his incommunicable attributes, beginning 
with his aseity and his eternality. Children sometimes ask, who made God? And the clearest answer is that God never needed to be made because he was always there. He is eternal. As the creator of space and time, he necessarily exists outside of and independent from his creation. He exists in a way quite different from us. We, his creatures, exist in a dependent, derived, finite, fragile way, but our maker exists in an eternal, self-sustaining, independent, and necessary way. God's self-existence is a basic truth about who he is. As we read earlier at the outset of his explanation of the unknown God to the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus, Paul explained that God, the world's creator, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The word aseity means that he has life in himself and draws his unending existence from himself. Ah, say in Latin means from himself. And it was coined as a term by theologians to express this very truth, which Bible makes clear from cover to cover. We could see it in Psalm 24, 50, 90, 102, and 146. He is the great I am that I am. And we read in John 5, 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And even from verse 28 in our text from Isaiah, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. Bavink defines aseity by saying that God is whatever he is by his own self, of, of his own self. He adds that aseity is commonly viewed as the first of the attributes and even says that all other attributes were derived from this one. The idea is that God is not in any way dependent on anything outside of himself, but he has sufficient resources within himself for all that he is and all that he does. In this way, God's lordship is absolute and independent of anything he has created. Although we may tend to consider terms such as aseity and eternality or eternity as philosophical ideas, our knowledge of them are, like all other divine attributes, grounded in the practical reality of God as our covenant Lord. We confess His aseity and eternality because such a confession is implicit in the very act of worship, in the reverence that the worshiper has for his God. Note the connection between aseity, eternality, and worship in Paul's doxological prayer at the end of Romans 11, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that brings us to immutability and impassibility. These are important, key, historic attributes the church has confessed, attributes that distinguish the infinite and eternal creator from the finite and temporal creature. Immutability means that God does not change in any way. He is unchanging and for that reason perfect in every way. Impassibility, a corollary to immutability, means God doesn't experience emotional change in any way, nor does God suffer. 
Understood rightly, he does not suffer from human passions. And to clarify, God does not merely choose to be impassable. He is impassable by divine nature. This we need to understand about all of his attributes. Impassibility is intrinsic to his very being. Impassibility does not mean that God is apathetic, nor does it undermine divine love. God is love. He is his attributes in infinite measure. Impassibility provides great hope. For only a God who is not vulnerable to suffering in his divinity is capable of rescuing a world drowning in suffering. We see both of these divine attributes in Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Since God is impassable, He does not merely possess love. He is love, and He is love in infinite measure. He cannot become more loving than He already is eternally. If He did, then His love would be passable. It would change, perhaps from good to better, which would imply it was not perfect to begin with. We must always avoid any thoughts of God as becoming more or any different than He always has been. That's key to our understanding of God when we talk about His attributes. Those who fail to understand God's immutability and impassibility have gone so far as to teach that God is becoming more liberal through the course of history. The idea of becoming is one of the heresies of the 20th century in what is known as process theology. And we find this heresy (coughs) embraced by black and feminist liberation theology. Consider briefly these three tenets of process theology of liberation. There is a relational character to the divine which allows God to experience both joy and suffering of humanity. God suffers just as those who experience oppression, and God seeks to actualize all positive and beautiful potentials. God must therefore in solidarity with the God therefore must be in solidarity solidarity with the oppressed and must also work for their liberation. Point two. God is not omnipotent in the classical sense, and so God does not provide support for the status quo, but rather seeks the actualization of greater good. Point three, God exercises relational power and not unilateral control. In this way, God cannot instantly end evil and oppression in the world. God works in relational ways to help guide persons to liberation. Do you see, as I read real quickly through those three points of process theology, how this theology is attempting to make God fit a man-centered philosophy, and that their thoughts about God are altogether too human. Process theologians do not describe God as He reveals Himself in Scripture. For He alone is perfect, and He is unchanging, and He is not becoming anything. We need to hang on to that. And that brings us to omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. Omnipotence means that God is in total control of himself and his creation. He is all-powerful and unlimited in his power. He is the one who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span. Omniscience means that he is the ultimate criterion of truth and falsity. So that 
His ideas are always true. He is all-knowing, without limit to his awareness and understanding and wisdom. He has comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The implied answer to the rhetorical questions, who hath directed the Spirit of God, or been his counselor, or taught him, or whom took he counsel and instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding, the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is no one. Omnipresence means that as God's power and knowledge extend to all parts of his creation, he himself is present everywhere. There is no place that escapes the power and knowledge of God. There is no place where we can escape the presence of God. He is the one who sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And as we read earlier in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I free from thy, flee from thy presence? If I ascend up in, into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Together, these omni-attributes define God's lordship, and they yield a rich understanding of creation, providence, and salvation. John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of God, argues that Scripture typically defines God's lordship, which Frame equates to his sovereignty, as his control, authority, and presence. God's omnipotence is his control over all things. His omniscience is his authority to declare what is true. And his omnipresence is his real existence in every time and place. So when we talk about God's omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, we are talking about his lordship and his sovereignty. He is the God that bringeth the princes to nothing and maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. He is ultimate in his sovereignty over all his creation at all times, and everywhere. Unless we become too weary, I will conclude with one of God's incommunicable attributes that we need to hold tightly to, but one which is also very foreign to our human experience, and that is His divine simplicity. In using this term, we are saying that God is not made up of parts, nor is He compounded or composite in nature. And this means that He does not possess attributes as if his attributes are one thing and his essence is another. Rather, his essence is his attributes and his attributes are his essence. God is his attributes. That means that all that God is simply is God. Simplicity is important because it distinguishes between the infinite, eternal, and immutable creator and the finite, temporal, and mutable creature. Simplicity is confirmed affirmed by our confessions, but more importantly, it is assumed throughout all Scripture whenever God is identified in the strongest sense with His attributes and is inferred in Scripture as an affirmation of His divine immutability, eternity, and aseity. Scripture identifies God fully with all of His attributes. We read that God is love, and God is spirit, and God is light, and that God is a consuming fire. He is Alpha and Omega. We err, therefore, if we think that He is part love and part mercy, part goodness and part truth. He is all of His attributes, all of the time, in His very essence. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This statement declares God's solitary sovereignty over all things, yet God's oneness 
involves more than his uniqueness. For if he were divided in his own being, all unity would be shattered. One divine purpose might be set against another, and one divine power against another divine power. On the contrary, divinity is not fragmented either into multiple gods or a division within one God. Divine simplicity reminds us that God is never self-conflicted. We find that the simplicity of, simplicity of God shines more, most brightly at the cross of Christ. There, at the climax of His redemptive work, Christ glorified not one, but all the attributes of God. We might tend to think of God's attributes as being at odds with one another, justice quarreling with mercy, majesty opposed to love, divine happiness compromised by compassion for the lost, His power contrary to His gentleness, and God's aseity and eternity making the incarnation impossible. However, in Christ crucified, we see the whole glory of God resplendent in perfect harmony. It is here at the cross we see that His love, wisdom, goodness, justice, holiness, mercy, power, and indeed all of His attributes are united to their highest degree and exaltation. And so I'll close with this hymn by Simon Brown from the early 18th century in which we see the unity of God's glorious attributes. <clears throat> Eternal God, almighty cause of earth and seas and worlds unknown, all things are subject to thy laws, all things dependent on thee alone. Thy glorious being singly stands of all within itself possessed by none controlled in thy commands and in thyself completely blessed. To Thee alone ourselves we owe. Let heaven and earth do homage pay. All other gods we disavow. Deny their claims. Renounce their sway. Spread Thy great name through heathen lands. Their idol deities dethrone. Subdue the world to Thy commands. And reign as Thou art God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what wonderful truths you have revealed. What wonderful, marvelous power and majesty and wisdom you possess. And what wonderful plans you have determined for your people. As we continue to ponder, to seek, to behold our great God, fill us, we pray, with your grace and enlist us in your work and so manifest the might of your words to us that the glory of your perfect kingdom may shine as bright and near to us as it did to your prophet of old, even to Isaiah, and that we might become her diligent servants and so labor in joyful gospel hope. O Lord, humble our selfish thoughts and wash away the worldly wisdom that so easily checks and chokes and throttles our thoughts of you. Open the eyes of our hearts and minds ever wider that we may apprehend and, and thus exult in who you truly are, even as you have revealed yourself in your holy word. Bring perspective to our prayers that we may be more filled with your praise, that greater priority is giving, given to thanksgiving and that our petitions are directed to your glory alone. 
And this is our prayer before you, which we bring in the, in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.